This is the last message in this series on life of prayer. I don't want us to back off the intensity of this, though, because it is it does fit in to the whole big picture. And, and one of the things that we've been doing, a part of this building up, ramping up, is been at, we've asked you to go through a Bible study with us. Back at the end of Memorial Day weekend, actually, we started selling the book, Follow Me. I know some of y'all have ventured into this. Over 200 copies we sold, sold out multiple times, and so we just kept ordering. Now we just say, buy it online. Now listen, if you're like me, I'm confessing here, I've fallen behind. I'm not on track. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a full week behind. Listen, you may have got two days into it and fallen behind. That's okay. Now's the time to jump right back into it. And it's not date stamped at all. You just kind of go through it and go through it at your speed and just try to keep up. Or, or just try to keep up with yourself as you go through it. But what we're trying in this series is not just to have a message on prayer. Not to just say, you need to go pray, not to have a program of prayer, but we're actually trying to take it to where we will raise up people of prayer, not simply people who pray. There's a difference in that because people who pray, pray occasionally, pray when they're in an emergency situation, when they're remembered to pray. We want people of prayer. And so this prayer walking guide, follow me guide, really just kind of puts you in that tone, that frame of reference that throughout your day, throughout your years, you will become a person of prayer. Now, we've studied in this series the life of Christ and how he prayed and how, how he prayed from the very beginning. We studied Mark chapter 1, the very first chapter in Mark, and how he has this pattern of prayer throughout his life. You look at the very beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, you'll find Jesus praying in the very first scene there. You find Christ praying again. So as you find him, you'll find him throughout his life praying. We come to the very end now. We're at the very end of his ministry, his 33 years on the earth. And we're going to see in the final hours him praying. And we're going to see the value and the power of that. But here's one of the things we see in that is that prayer will bring to an intimate relationship with God. You need to be in prayer. I need to be in prayer because I need an intimate relationship with God. We see Jesus. He even said, I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me to do. I don't say anything unless the Father tells me to say it. The only way you're going to have that kind of communication, that kind of relationship, is to be in prayer. And Jesus models that for us. But I want to take it to a new level today, and I know I've kind of skimmed across it a little bit as we've gone along, but I want to talk about prayer and how it enables you to be in relationship with other people, all right? Now, you're not praying to people, uh, but you're learning to pray for people and how that enables you to be in a better relationship with them. It's really hard to curse somebody when you're praying for someone, unless you're praying and cursing them all in the same prayer. You know, so unless you can figure that one out. But uh, really, it should bring us together. Now, the first one is the most important. You need to be in an intimate relationship with God. The second one is the most difficult, because prayer will enable you to have a relationship with other people. I don't know about you, but people get on my nerves. People bother me. They get in my way. They slow me down. They mess me up. If I don't mess myself up, but uh, people are difficult. Pe- people are just difficult, and to be around them. But prayer has this spiritual, emotional element to it that we're able to not only connect vertically with God, but horizontally better with man. Whenever prayer is a part of our life, 
So let's talk about people today. Let's talk about people and prayer and how those inter, intertwine with one another. But as we talk about people, I want to establish some... Ex- I believe they will be acceptable. They may be disturbing at times, but I want to ex- I want to establish two realities in dealing with people. One, first reality is that no one can be trusted. All right, just put it down. No one can be trusted. I'm not trying to darken your day. I'm not trying to be negative Ned up here. I'm not trying to talk bad about other people, but here's just the reality. And the sooner you face this reality, the, the better off you will be. The person sitting next to you right now, you cannot fully trust. All right. I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not, I'm not trying to put doubt in your minds. I'm just telling you the truth. You cannot fully trust them. Now here's the good, here's the good news. They can't fully trust you either. It's the reality. They can't fully trust you. You can't fully trust them. Now here's just something that may blow your mind. You can't even trust you. You can't even trust everything about what you think. When people say, oh, just follow your heart, go with your gut instinct, that's a bunch of hogwash. Don't do that. Please don't do that. You'll end up in a train wreck. What you need to realize is that you can't even trust yourself. You can't trust the person next to you fully. You can't trust anybody fully because people are messed up. They're deceitful even. Jeremiah says it that way, Seventeen nine of Jeremiah. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand? He asks a question. The very next verse, verse 10, says, but God. Nobody can truly understand our hearts. We can't even fully understand our hearts. We can't even trust our hearts fully because our hearts will deceive us. They will lead us down a wrong path. Even Romans chapter 3, verse 10 talks about how there's not one person on this planet that has it figured out. They're not righteous. There's nobody righteous, not even one. Now, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to paint some dark, dim picture of, of mankind, but it is time for us to face the music. We can't tr- be trusted, we can't trust other people, and we can't even trust ourselves with ourselves because we're deceitful. We have ulterior motives. We get off track. So what do you do with these people that are out there like that? What do you do with people that you can't trust? Jesus spoke when he was speaking on prayer in in Luke chapter 6, verse 28. He says, pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, I have to say, when I hear the word abuse, that creates a visceral response inside of me. I don't like. I don't like to hear it. I don't like to imagine it. It conjures up this really darkness, this really deceptive, demented part of of reality, this heavy-handedness in our society and when you're dealing with people. But we are told to pray for our abusers. Hang on to that one. Because really, I don't want to pray for them unless I am cursing them in my prayers. So that's my natural response. How do you pray for your abusers? I read something this past week. I have a hard time believing, but I have nothing to refute it. One in three girls, one in seven boys will suffer from some form of sexual abuse in growing up. And most of those times it will happen with somebody that they trusted. Not a rank stranger walking in the park. Those are the ones that make the headlines. It's the aunt, the uncle, the cousin, the brother, the sister, the mother, the, the, the priest. It's the teacher. It's the person that you 
that you trusted, that you believed in, and the darkness of that. NIV says mistreats you. New Living Translation says hurts you. King James Version says despitefully uses you. Have you ever been used? Have you ever been hurt? Have you ever been abused? And I'm just going to throw something blanket across this room and I'm going to believe just from national averages that there are people in this room that have a skeleton in their closet, that have a darkness in them that they've not talked with anybody about. They don't talk with anybody about it. They don't want to go there. They've, they've gone on. They've passed on from it. Maybe, maybe they haven't. But people are cruel. And that's a reality that we must face. People use people. People hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. Offended people offend people. There's nothing simple about it. You can go to work today or tomorrow and, and find that there'll be somebody who would just as soon step on your back, stab you in the back, walk on top of you, take your position and look back and not even look back at you, maybe even chuckle at you. You'll find somebody who would love to def- who d- bring you down morally or ethically. Gain your position, your power, your influence. Who would love to steal your relationship with that significant someone else? Who will even invade your innocence and violate you? Who will compromise your character or your reputation even if it's not truthful? Who would love to take your fortune and your fame? And they won't even bat an eye about it. We call that envy in Scripture, but we just skip right over it in our own American culture. How do you deal with people like this? Do you meet them to the sucker punch? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you get one up on them before they get up on you? Or do you get up on them whenever they get up on you? Luke chapter 6, verse 28. Pray for those who abuse you. How do we pray for people like this? Jesus not only told us to do this in Luke 6, but He Himself modeled for it in in. in in the book of Luke, in the book of John, in the book of Matthew. And so I want you to take your Bibles and be turning to Luke chapter 23. We're going to look at a, a, a scenario, a scene, when Jesus himself prays. Now, in, in, in this final little hours before his death, he's hanging on a cross starting at 9 a.m. in the morning. And um, six hours or so later... He's near death or at death. And, and during that time of hanging in the heated sun of Jerusalem with flies just buzzing around and mocking and scourgings and all that he was going through, he was able to lift himself up on the cross just long enough to get enough air into his lungs to speak out seven times. Now, doctors have studied the crucifixion, and they believe that there's two things that were probably happening to Jesus at the same time. He was both drowning And he was suffocating all at the same time. Internally bleeding most likely because he was lacerated so deeply outside. They believe he was beaten and bruised on the inside. That he was internally bleeding inside. But at the same time, because of the very nature of the crucifixion, you have to lift yourself up to even get air. He was suffocating under the weight of it all. And in this moment, you find him make seven statements. And they're very short and succinct. But I want you to notice this as we talk about the life of prayer in Christ is that out of seven of those times, three of those times are prayers. 
That's a, that's a significant number if you think about it in, in that, that, that period of time. That half of everything that Jesus uttered when he raised himself up, when he sucked in a few, a few gasps of air, the, the half, nearly half of everything that he did was prayed. Now I want to talk about those prayers. But I want to mainly focus on the first prayer that he prayed, the very first words that he uttered. But I want to kind of just briefly summarize the second one. The second one was when he cries out to God on his own behalf. And he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani. In this Arabic tongue, he cries out to God. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that betraying moment when all the sins of all the world, of all mankind, of all time, are landed upon, are put upon, are downloaded into the heart and the soul and the weight and the shoulders of our, of our Lord as God turns and walks away. In that dark moment, he cries out, why have you forsaken me? Another time, the third time he prays is at the very end of his life. The very last breath, when he into his hands, he commits his spirit to God. Now, it's a beautiful statement because he actually is drawing from Scripture when he prays here. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that the power of praying Scripture, he prays Psalm 31, verse 5. See, when you pray Scripture, you're praying. Sometimes you don't know what to pray. When you pray Scripture, it gives you words to pray. You pray with accuracy. You pray with authority when you pray the Scriptures. And Jesus, in his last utterance, before he says, it is finished, he cries out and he gives his spirit over to God. But I want to focus on the first prayer of Christ hanging on the cross. The one when he cries out and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So very quickly, let's look at verse, 20, or th- verse 33 of chapter 23 of Luke. And it says, And when they came to the place called the skull. Now the Latin word here is calvaria, which is where we get calvary, which is, means the skull. There they crucified him and the criminal... And the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. And Jesus said in a very succinct sentence, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And they cast lots and they divided his garments. Now, if you have your Bibles, keep your Bibles open there. And you might go over to John chapter 19. Uh, The next book over, you'll find John chapter 19. And in that book, you'll find a continuation or a, a more full development of this of this whole what's this casting lots among the, the garments and so forth. And it's a parallel passage. And he says this in verse 23. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each of the soldiers, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless and woven in pieces from top to bottom. And they said to one another, let us tear it, but... Uh, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. I just want to stop there, and I just want to say, this is a this is a tragic scene that's going on right here. As these Roman soldiers, four or five, six of them, however many there are there, they're they're, they're ripping clothes off of Jesus. He's he's literally down to his tunic, which is his underwear. They strip him from his underwear. They gamble. For his underwear. In this horrible scene that happens on Calvary, the skull, the place of death, and you even just has this gruesome picture whenever you think of this place. And in one of the words of, of, of our Lord as he hangs on the cross, but he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
So I want us to just kind of piggyback on that. And I want us to beg the question because I think it does beg the question. What do you do? How do you, how do you possibly pray a prayer like that? How do you, how do you, how do you give forgiveness? Which is the second reality that I want to, I want to just mention of mankind as you deal with people. Everyone needs to experience forgiveness. No one can be trusted, number one, but everyone needs, needs to experience forgiveness. And that's exactly what we see unfolding here in the life of Christ. And I just want to look at his prayer, his simple sentence prayer. This, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I want to see three steps towards forgiveness. First of all, there's the divine intervention. Jesus, what does he first do whenever he prays? He calls to the Father. He calls to the Father. He doesn't call to the offenders. He doesn't call for justice to the offenders. He calls to the Father. Now, this is just a reality about life. The heinous crimes that we commit, and, and even Jesus being God, he was able to walk and heal the, heal the, heal the man with palsy. And he, he says, you're forgiven. He goes to another person who's, who's been weeping over the feet of Jesus, washing the feet of Jesus, and he says, your sins are forgiven. But this time's different. This time the offense is against him. And what does he do? He cries out to God. He says, Father, Father. There's one thing about offenses. There's one thing about crimes against humanity. There's one thing about Holocaust. There's one thing about injustice. There's one thing about it that it will never be reconciled outside of bringing God into the scene. Because if my and my own human flesh, what I want to do is I want to cry out, justice, justice. I want to cry out, God, get even with them. I want to call them down. I want to beat them down. I want to get even with them. But what Jesus does is he cries out to the Father. The very first words. Alexander Pope said, and it was almost scriptural, I would believe, 18th century poet said, to err is human, but to forgive is divine. To understand that divinity and forgiveness go hand in hand and that we're not going to just naturally forgive. It's not natural to forgive. It's supernatural. And that's why I think that it's so important that as we deal with our offenses, and I want everyone in this room to think of, I'm not telling you to dredge up anything. If you don't have anything, move on. But I dare say we all have wounds of our past. And I just want you to... Bring that enough to the surface just so you can have that in your mind. Broken trust, broken relationship, betrayal, abuse, mistreating. You were hurt somehow, some way. Just keep that just close enough to the surface that that will be the subject matter of your own heart today. How are you going to deal with that? You won't deal with it unless you go to the Father first. Going to the Father is the first move. It's the first step. We get to see the quality and the quantity of what rule of forgiveness looks like. The, 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 qual- the quantity of forgiveness, whenever you think about Jesus and his confrontation or his uh, conversation, excuse me, with Peter. When Peter was talking about how many times should I forgive somebody? He said seven times. Is that good enough? And what does Jesus say? He says, no, 77 times. Now, I don't have time to talk about that passage today other than to say that it was quite clear that Jesus was was more than one-upping him. He was saying, listen, forgiveness ought to be a way of life. 
to where I live and I give and I exude forgiveness in all areas, in all relationships, however many times it needs to be given. I need to administer forgiveness. But he also speaks of the quality of this forgiveness. So where does this forgiveness, how far does it go? I mean, is it, is it, is it as easy as just removing it and going on? Well, God said this in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now that's a beautiful statement when you think it's east that way, west that way, okay, we're going to go, or actually east that way, west that way, we're going we're gonna to throw it this way and throw it that way. But there's something even more powerful and profound about this verse. Why didn't God say, I'm going to throw your sin as far as the north is from the south? Because you know what? If you get in your car and you travel north today, you'll travel north, you'll travel north, and eventually you'll hit the North Pole, and then all of a sudden you'll start traveling south. North meets south. You can go east in an airplane, east in an airplane, and east will never meet west. There's no end to his forgiveness. There's no way that you can say that, okay, I will forgive so far, but if it ever meets up again. No, no, no. It never meets up as far as the east is from the west. They are separated forever. North meets south. East never meets west. You can just keep going. That's the quality of forgiveness. The only way I'm going to forgive my offenders is the first step is to the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Even those offenders were at his feet. The first step he made was to the Father. The second thing that he said, he said, forgive them. Now that is a loose word. That's a hard word. So I want to just say this, and the best way I could say it is really what that means is we need to practice delete. Delete. Delete the record keeping, okay? We need to practice this in our own offenses. We need other people to practice this on us as we have offended them as well. It's really easy to say, I'll forgive, but I will never forget. 90 time, 90% of the time, I will say that that person has not forgiven. They are saying they've forgiven. They're saying they've moved on, but they really haven't. They're carrying it with them. They're taking it through life. And you just wait till the next argument comes back around. It can be, listen, I've seen it happen decades later. And an argument that happened a decade ago becomes the argument of today. He wasn't forgiven. He was resurrected. He was always alive. He was bubbling underneath the surface. He was being carried through life. Father, forgive them. So what does this word forgive mean? It's a, it's a, it's a word that it actually didn't overwhelm me when I first started doing a word study on it this week. It literally just means... Don't be, don't be overwhelmed to leave, to leave. I thought, that's a big deal. So I kept digging. What, is, what does it mean to leave? So it means to leave as if you're going on a journey. Other times it's used in other biblical writings and other, uh, other places where you're here and this happens here, but you're going from here to there, but you leave here. Forgiveness, when you leave some offense, when you leave the wrong, when you leave the injustice, it doesn't go with you for decades. 
It doesn't go with you into the next argument. It stays back here. Now, did it happen? Yes. Are the wounds there? Yes. Is there recovery time and all that journey forward? Yes. But the wound, the offense stays. That's literally what that word means. It means to leave, leave it behind, move on, go past it, get, get on from it. You say, well, my, like, you don't understand. You don't know what's happened to me. <laughs> you don't know what's happened to me. I don't know what's happened to you. Does it matter? It's happened. It's an offense. It's wrong. But you've got to move on. You've got to leave it and move on. And more than like, you understand here at this moment, that offender's still out there. That person is not remorseful. That person is still just as manipulative as they've ever been. And I understand that. Notice where Christ was whenever he prayed this prayer. He's hanging on the cross. They're gambling for his underwear. He's stripped naked. It's not a pretty picture. And he's crying out, Father, forgive them. Father, Forgive them. In the moment, with unrepentant hearts. So here's just some quick realities for us. The offense doesn't determine forgiveness. One is forgivable, one is not forgivable. You can't forgive this. Oh, well, I can forgive that. Because then what you're going to do to me, and I'm going to do to you, and I'm going to tell you how you need to practice forgiveness, and you're going to tell me how I need to practice forgiveness, and we're going to have a wall between us. Mm -mm. All of it's forgivable. The offender doesn't determine the forgiveness. The Roman soldiers were were still gambling for his clothes. In his very presence, at that very moment, He's crying out, Father, forgive them. The offended determines forgiveness. The offended. If you have been offended, you are the one who will determine whether or not forgiveness will ever apply to that circumstance. Forgiveness, his life principle for you, is given. It is not earned. Now let me say this to you real carefully. Don't confuse forgiveness with reconciliation. Forgiveness is a matter between you and God. Notice again, where did Jesus pray? When his offenders were at his feet, did he talk down to them and say, please don't do that to me. Please don't. If you'll say you're sorry, I will forgive you. No, he goes to the Father even though his offenders were right at his feet. So he talks to the Father about the offense. That's where the, re- that's where the hope comes from. That's where the forgiveness happens back and forth. I'm able to forgive them because I'm in relationship here. If I don't have that relationship, I don't know how I'm going to forgive. That's how important this relationship is. Reconciliation is not what we're talking about. Forgiveness is a personal matter. Reconciliation is a mutual agreement. We all have offenders in our life. We've all been offended. And we even see Jesus being offended and his, his betrayers, his, his, his abusers are right in front of him. But here's the thing about it. In my own life, in my own experience, the offenders, I'm just going to leave it generic enough. Because there's a realness still about it. There's, a, there's a still a reality about it that I can't get fully past. 
But here's, 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 the re- here's what we need to take home from here. Is that forgiveness happens between me and God, even if reconcili- does, reconciliation doesn't happen between me and man. Now, I'm not trying to separate the two. I want reconciliation. But the, the problem is, is that this reconciliation isn't going to happen because this person is still manipulative. This person is still hurtful. The Roman soldiers are still gambling. The reconciliation was not going to happen at that moment. But the forgiveness could. And so I can move in, out in life, and I can move on in life. And this person that is my part of my life and still out there, I can go to this person, and I can shake this person's hand, and I can, I can actually have a cordial conversation. I'm not saying that viscerally inside of me there's not something happening whenever I'm having this conversation, but I can move on. I've achieved some level of differentiation that it doesn't consume me and control me because I've been in a relationship with the Father and forgiveness is being applied. Number three. We've got to displace the blindness with truth. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Most people who hurt people don't realize what they're doing. They really don't. They're not doing it out of spite. They're not doing it out of anger. They're they're hurt people hurting people. And how does this happen? How does hurt people hurt people who hurt people who hurt people for, for generations? It's called a generational sin. They're only doing what they saw their grandparents do, that their parents did, that they're now doing to their children. And it just goes on from one generation to the next. And what we do in moderation, our next generation will do in excess. And so as we're sitting here living in this generational sin, if we don't ever stop it, call it what it is, say this has got to stop, take off the blinders. And call some of the things of our own generations that we've been passed down. If we don't stop it and stop it now, guess what? It'll happen next. It'll happen in your kids. It'll happen in your grandkids. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. What, what did Jesus just say about these guys? They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. I have two closing questions for you. How was or is my offender blinded that I need to give them grace? That person or persons that has hurt you, abused you, mistreated you, taken advantage of you, how were they blinded that you need to now give grace to them? I'm not saying reconcile. That's a mutual relationship restoration process. That's a whole other conversation, a whole other message. But I am so convinced that when Jesus died on the cross, He died and He provided forgiveness for all the world, for all mankind, for all time as He carried on those offenses. But reconciliation happens whenever I enter into a relationship with Him. When I repent of my sins, when I confess Him. So where the people who, who offended you, how, how does that need to be made right? How do you need to give grace 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says, Look after each other so that none of you falls, fails to receive the grace of God. I love that verse. That's powerful. No one re- fails to receive the grace of God. What, what happens if they fail to receive the grace of God? Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up in, uh, to trouble you. Because if we don't forgive them, guess what we carry with us? Bitterness. You know what bitterness is? It's drinking poison and waiting for the next person to die. It's waiting for your offender to die after you drank poison. Here's a question for you. Where am I blind? Where am I blind that I need to repent? It's not just who's offended me, but who have I offended? If you remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, the true Lord's Prayer in John 17, he said, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. About six months ago, I woke up in the middle of the night. I don't know what it was. It was one of those dreams that you might count as a vision. I don't know. But it was one of those very vivid dreams to this day. I can recall it. It was a dream recalling an event that happened 30 years ago where I was the offender. I was in junior high school. And I could remember this event. I hadn't seen this person since high school, maybe even since junior high, but I remembered my offense. Well, what do you do when you when you got to find somebody today? You Facebook them. Everyone's out there. You creep them. And so that's what exactly what I did. I found the person. They're living in Memphis, Tennessee. I wrote them, and I said, "I'm really sorry." I did this and that and so on and so forth 30 years ago. Now, that person wrote back and just laughed and said, I, you know, that's no big deal. Moved on. I don't know if they did or they didn't or whatever. But I tell you what I wanted to do is I wanted to keep a short list with that person. <laughs> and I wanted to make it right with that person. So far as it depends on me, the Bible says, be at peace with all people. I want to get darkness out and I want to get truth in my life and in all my relationships. Would you pray with me? Father, right now in this place, in this hour, in this moment, there are people who are hurting. There are people who have hurt. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They hurt you. They hurt others. They hurt the next generation. But dear God, I pray they will seek reconciliation. If it's an event that happened 30 years ago or 30 days ago or 30 minutes ago in the car coming to church, I pray that, Lord, we will be people of forgiveness, about forgiveness, dispensing forgiveness, and praying for reconciliation. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. You showed it on the cross how to pray for those who abuse us, mistreat us, use us, and hurt us. You did it, God. You did it, Jesus. Help us to rise and do the same. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?